The delicious ice-cold taste of Dr. Pepper has a lasting effect on people. Lindsay from Sacramento said, Pro tip, 40 degrees is the perfect temperature for an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. Why is 40 degrees the perfect temperature for Dr. Pepper? We brought in Sue from Duluth, Minnesota to tell us. Oh yeah, I know a thing or two about cold. Oh, that right there is the perfect kind of ice-cold for Dr. Pepper. Mm, I'd share that with my friend Nancy. She likes Dr. Pepper too, you know. My cold All right, that'll be all, Sue. Having a perfect temperature for your Dr. Pepper, it's a Pepper thing. Inspired by real fan posts. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. All of our, like, unexamined insecurities, all of our unexamined attitudes about the people that we choose to be with can get channeled into sex, can get channeled into the ways in which we use other people's objects just to get the things that we want. And we kind of rob the humanity from the partners that we're with, you know? And that's the trauma, like particularly in the gay queer community, gay and queer men, like that's, the, that's like at the top of those, it's like the number one kinds of trauma that we experience. It's like, I'm gonna use you because actually, I'm just like deeply like out of tune with my body. I'm angry at you, you know, because you're mirroring back these things about myself that I don't want to deal with. But at the same time, I'm using you, you know, to get this moment of pleasure that I'm just going to throw you away. It's a consumption. It's uh, an abuse. Um, it is um, an addiction. A self-titled bad Buddhist, Lamarad Owens is a comforting, honest, and straight-talking queer black man who's considered one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. His new book is Love and Rage, The Path to Liberation Through Anger, and he opens the first chapter like this. Since the 2016 presidential election, shit has been hard for some of us. For the rest of us, shit has been hard for a while. From his rearing in the black church to his self-discovery through Buddhism, our conversation is one of deep reflection and a frank exploration of the ways in which our unaddressed anger prevents us from not only a psychic and physical liberation, but from connecting meaningfully to ourselves and to others in every imaginable part of our lives. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod, thank you so much for making time for Busy Being Black. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I was hoping that you might lead us into this conversation with a short meditation. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I love to just start all of my practices <clears throat> with first just acknowledging my body. You know, for many marginalized folks, particularly Black folks, we like sometimes we forget our bodies you know, because our bodies can be quite unsafe for us, you know. So I always start my practice with saying, you know, Rod, here's your body, you know, come back, <laughs> you know, come back to the seat, come back to the sensations of sitting. I'm just noticing the, the sensations of the body making contact with whatever you're sitting on or standing on. Allowing our attention now to, to kind of float, to sink down into the earth, letting our attention touch the earth, touch into the earth, 
acknowledge the earth. As we touch the earth, the earth is touching us back. As the earth touches us back, it is loving us, it is accepting us. So in this moment, just allowing ourselves to just be held by the earth, taking refuge in the earth, even just for a few moments, you know, letting the earth have the things that we struggle to hold for ourselves, letting the earth have the burdens, the stress, the fear, And then lastly, I like to bring my attention back up, just bringing my attention to my heart center. And I love to every day at some point, just reflect on something that I'm grateful for. And I'll allow that gratitude to kind of spark as this energy, like a flame in my heart center. And I just breathe in and out of that flame as I breathe into that flame in my heart center, that energy of gratitude just begins to circulate. I feel it as warmth, I see it as light. And I just let it fill my whole being, my body and my mind. And lastly, I just, I share this energy of gratitude down into the earth. And I thank the earth for holding me. I share this energy of gratitude into my breath. I thank my breath for supporting me. I share this energy of gratitude intentionally with my body. I thank my body for housing me. And then I turn this gratitude, this energy of gratitude outward, and I share this energy of gratitude with all those beings around me who love me, who support me, who protect me, my ancestors, my lineage, my gurus and teachers, my guardian spirits and angels, all the beings who are protecting me every day, I thank them. And I come back into this moment. And we begin our work. That was beautiful. Thank you. What an amazing way to start the show. <laughs> um, so speaking of gratitude, I'm grateful that you're here. I'm also grateful for busy being black busy being black listeners and those who keep tuning in to hear the deliciousness that um, is convened in this space. And just to say to, to you again, thank you so much. And, and for starting the show like that, what a beautiful way to start. You know, we're here to talk mostly because of your book, your new book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. But I'd like to start a lot earlier than your book. Um, can we go back to the beginning of your life? I'd love to know more about a baby rod. Yes. Yes, that's hot. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I grew up in the American South, so I grew up in Georgia, um, North Georgia. And, you know, that's the part of the United States that we call both the Bible Belt uh, as well as the Deep South. Uh, and, and I grew up in a small town. I grew up um, in the Black church. And so those are the things that really define me. 
you know, that was, you know, my early introduction to community, to spirituality and religion. Um, you know, it was my introduction to history, um, to ancestry, you know, um, my grandfather was a minister. He was a Baptist minister, my father's father. Then my mother um, is currently a Methodist minister, you know, and I have lots of uncles who are deacons. My dad is a deacon. Um, so I have like this ancestry, this current generational ancestry of religious leaders in my family. Um, and my mother, when I graduated from high school, actually it was actually when I graduated from college, you know, she just, she really wanted me to go into the ministry, you know, and I look back and I joke with her and I'm like, well, you should have been more specific about which ministry you were talking about. Because <laughs> um, it was a wide open aspiration. So I just picked <laughs> what spoke to me and, you know, but, you know, another thing that was really important for me growing up was um, the black radical tradition, the black, Black prophetic tradition, you know, and that was something my dad introduced me to, um, just reading the works of W.E.B. Du Bois and, um, and Malcolm X, you know, um, and just really like opening my eyes to this tradition that I come from a community that was about struggle and change. You know, and then that influenced me to become an activist, right? So it took me into my 20s and, you know, I got involved with everything from HIV AIDS awareness and education to hunger and homelessness to sexual assault advocacy. Um, I did just about everything. Um, and then in my early 20s after graduating university, I um, joined a community that was in the tradition of the Catholic worker movement. Um, Catholic workers were a movement that began during the Depression in the United States. So it was about 19, early 1800s, um, the 10s and 20s, um, by a woman named Dorothy Day, you know, and she was this, you know, radical feminist, you know, anti-war, everything. She was kind of really out there. Then she converted to Catholicism you know, which is not how that works. <laughs> no, but she, she brought her politics into her faith mm -hmm. um, in a really powerful way. And that began this movement of people living together, practicing radical politics and also faith and mm -hmm. spirituality, right? Um, and of course, um, though that community spread all over the world. And so I was able to join one um in boston and the mentor the founder of that community ended up becoming my mentor um in buddhism you know and mm -hmm. she had um been a close friend of dorothy day herself um and so when i moved in that in that into that community there weren't a lot of catholics right um but everyone was doing some kind of practice mm -hmm. like be it buddhist catholicism christianity all kinds of things being represented in different faiths um but when I joined, I was kind of like distancing myself from a lot of faith, a lot of spirituality. Right. Yeah. And just to go back to the black church and quickly, we, we share a similar um, upbringing and history in that. My grandfather was a Baptist minister, had his own church in a small blackwater town called Yoakum in Texas. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And so I also grew up in the black church. 
and you know I, I say that my spirituality now is steeped in that in that black in the black church right and so much of um, this community organizing if we go to the black radical tradition was delivered via the church right yes black exactly. church was this hot spot which i think to maybe jump ahead a little bit but which i think is part of some of the angst those of us who've had to divorce ourselves from the church for any number of reasons um part of what's lost in there i think what can what we feel can be lost in that is that sense of organizing community spirit um where we learned that wasn't necessarily a place in which we could thrive exactly yeah thank you for naming that you know because that's a a really intense tension that many of us hold you know it's like being born somewhere and then realizing that this place that you've been born that you grew up in that you call home you actually can't stay there because you won't ever be able to thrive or maybe even survive for many of us. So you leave home, there's a deep heartbreak that arises for many of us. You know, the, the church wasn't a negative experience for me. You know, um, I don't have memories of overt, you know, kind of anti-queerness, you know, anti-gayness at all, you know. But what became hurtful was the ways in which I what's growing and thinking and the ways I felt unsafe to be myself, you know? Um, and there's also a homophobia via osmosis, right? Like, I, I understand that innately, that there wasn't, uh, there wasn't an exact moment when someone pointed at me and said, you're wrong, but that you under, I understood it to be wrong for whatever reason, right? Yeah, but it was it was the erasure, you know. It was the it it was it was the lack of naming the lives of queer and gay folks within the community. Like we knew we knew people were there, but we refused to name them. It was if language filled us when we like turned our attention to the life of like the choir director or like you know, the pianist, you know, are like those two sisters who always come to church together, you know, but they're like, they're not sister sisters, they're not related, but they live together, <laughs> you know, they're just really good friends, you know, or, you know, Mr. Such and Such or so-and-so who, you know, very handsome, but he's never been married, you know, why, why is that? But he always has all these really handsome male friends around, you know? So, and that's, it just failed us, you know? And that was the violence in that moment. It was like, how can we bring ourselves to name the lives of people who, you know, who are, who are Christian, who are loving God, you know, but who are uh, embracing their life in a way mm -hmm. that, you know, may be very different from the community, you know? And you or think from this the, is, the dominant community. Mm -hmm. And do you think that what drew you to Buddhism? Was it there was more space for you to be Rod in, in Buddhism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so much that drew me there. Um, what drew me basically was the promise of liberation. You know, that was the first thing. And then secondly, Buddhism began to answer every single question that couldn't get answered anywhere else. Give me an example. You know, just about the mind, just about emotions and thoughts. Like I just felt trapped by thoughts and emotions. I felt enslaved 
to my mental health and the, and, and the ways in which I struggle with my mental health. I felt enslaved to my anger. I felt um, enslaved to my depression and sadness and hopelessness and it was deeply depleting. And so when, you know, this idea of like, well, you know, you can meditate, you know, was presented at first, like I didn't really take it seriously. And then I really started taking the practice seriously and began to get this kind of like relief. You know, it's like, oh, like I actually have agency over all this stuff, you know, and that was like, that changed my life. You know, I mean, I don't want to sound like a born again Christian, but like, I, you know, I gave my life. <laughs> no, to, we don't mind going. <laughs> you know, like I just, I gave, like, I was just like, finally, there's something that I can trust, something that's not lying to me, something that's not telling me, well, you know, you know, you'll feel better after you die and go to heaven, you know? And quite honestly, I was like, why do white people get to have a good time? And I don't <laughs> in this life. Hey. That was it, yeah. you know? I want to be free right now. I want to experience heaven right now. And then Buddha, Buddhism was like, okay, do it. Here are the practices. You just have to work. You know, it's not about necessarily praying and, and you know, and doing all this stuff. It's like, if you watch your mind, you will begin to experience liberation from the material of your mind. And it was absolutely true. You know, mm. it was medicine. It was the medicine that I'd been looking for my whole life. And I'd been like, I realized I was a Buddhist my whole life because growing up in church, I just had these questions. Like a lot of stuff didn't make sense, you know? And I felt like, and theology, and this is my still my relationship with theology is that like theology has a tendency to make a lot of excuses about things that it can't really explain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you yes. know, like faith is used as this really convenient thing to kind of cover over these gaps. Like you just, you just need to have faith, you know? And that wasn't enough for me. Yes, I am a person of faith, right? I I am a devout person, a faithful person, but that faith has come with a lot of evidence and data that's helped me to develop faith. And is some of that evidence and that data internal? Yes. Right? It's a kind of self-aggregating uh, self data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's like there's this um, saying that comes out of Zen Buddhism, which is that, you know, if you if you fall over the edge, if you jump off the edge, the net will, will catch you, you know? And so that's really like a teaching about faith. If you take this step, you're gonna be caught, you know? And initially that was like the challenge. It was like, just do this and you will see something. So I just, I had to like start sitting and watching my mind, doing these exercises. And then I began to see that I was being caught you know, and that deepened my faith, you know, and, and, you know, for me, Buddhism is like a science too. It's like, okay, here's a, the science of the mind. It's like, it's a psychology, you know, and it kept feeding me over and over again, you know, and it helped me to move into these places where I could actually start healing the trauma of being black, the trauma of growing up in church, through this path and you know and that was such to give me back the church and to give me god back in a way that was liberatory and freeing wow, yeah. was such a special gift for mm. me 
it's like that reconciliation. I, I have this conversation a lot, I think, um, not just on the show, but in my personal life. Um, and I had a great conversation with Reverend Jide Macaulay, who's a um, queer black theologian, the House of Rainbow. And we have this kind of very explicit conversation about reconciliation of sexuality and faith within the Christian tradition. And actually what you're offering here is a reconciliation directly with a higher power, right? That doesn't necessarily need to happen within um, the churches or the spaces in which we grew up. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes it's so difficult to heal in the spaces that we've been hurt, mm. you know, and it really takes us leaving. You know, I had to leave the South, I had to leave the church to figure out exactly what happened. And when you left, did you know that you were leaving for that reason? Or yeah. like, did you name it to yourself? Oh yeah, I was like, I was so tired. Right. <laughs> you know, I was, <laughs> I like, I had to get the hell out of there. And, you know, and my mother even just, you know, she kind of fed that back to me. She was like, yeah, there's nothing else left for you here. Right. Like you have to leave here to become what, who you need to become, you know, and it's taken, you know, you know, moving out of the South, it's like, okay, it's time for me to go into another culture. And that just gave me this intense, direct experience about, you know, okay, what was it? You know, when my culture becomes alien, then my culture becomes a subject that I can study, you know? So when I moved out of the South and became a Southerner in New England, that like I could actually look at my culture in all the ways. Yeah, almost I, like you know, anthropological. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. oh, this is how I behave. You know, this is what I say, you know, and I was like, oh, that's interesting to see that. You know, and I began to deconstruct that. You know, um, but it's it was really just about learning how to take care of myself. You know, that like I am I have to live in these systems of violence, but those systems of violence don't need to be replicated in my experience. I have consented to that replication, you know, and I had to start undoing that, you know, not that I'm going to completely undo it over the course of my life, but I've undone quite a bit of this internalized violence through the practice. So this brings us to the book, I think. Um, what has driven you to write Love and Rage? Why Love and Rage and, and why now? Yeah. Well, when I was writing it, I was writing it for right now. You know, it wasn't, I started this maybe a year and a half ago. Um, I wasn't writing it for a year and a half ago, right? Now, granted, I didn't know that was happening. You know, I knew I was writing something. I didn't understand why I was writing it, you know, but I know why I was writing it now because it's a book for now. You know, love and rage. Well, you know, I, you know, when we, you know, survived the 2016 elections, you know, it was really, it was like being kicked in the head. Mm, let me tell you how you opened the first chapter. Quote, since the 2016 presidential election, shit has been hard for some of us. For the rest of us, shit has been hard for a while. And it really made me laugh because I just, I don't think that people imagine Buddhists using shit to describe their experience. Yeah, it was, it was true. Like, it was like, wow, like it's like, you know, it's like my ancestors came back and they were like, okay, you like, we, we can do this. Like, it's just about learning how to survive when you've been kicked down, you know, when you've landed on the ground, this is how you get up. We know how to do this, 
you know, and I was in a state of shock for a while. Mm. Like I, I never experienced that kind of like trauma and numbness, you know, it wasn't just me, it was just everyone, you know? Um, and, and so when I started just like getting up and teaching and getting back out in the world, trying to help folks, you know, people were coming to me and they were like, what do we do with the anger? <laughs> what do we do with this stuff? What do we do with the despair and sadness? You know, and I was like, I don't know. I just got back up. Like, I just got back up, you know, and I realized that that wasn't good enough for folks, you know. And so the books just emerged out of, like, the need for me to actually tell people, how do you do this, you know? And then the title, Love and Rage, you know, I was just like, you know, for me, my anger and rage are really important. I'm not trying to get rid of it you know, but I think the problem is we think that we have to get rid of anger because this is what good, good people aren't angry, no, right? Never. You know, and that's just, just like a, another thing around like white supremacist culture where it's like, you know, you want to take it, the anger from the marginalized because if you take that away, they can't use it to disrupt the system, you know, so you pacify pacify people by making value statements and judgments about anger and there's this constant admonishment right um those who are angry are always always in the wrong unless they're white white rage is fine and i'm so glad we're having this conversation because my friend alex and i have been in an intellectual beef for about three months about anger <laughs> um because and i think that we're really both on the same page about it but i feel certain that anger is productive as audrey lord says anger contains information and energy or is loaded with information and energy and i think part of what well, your book can't look at all these notes i made your book <laughs> it answered like buddhism did for you it answered so many of the questions that i had myself about anger and i, I feel very grateful for that i was like yes i'm right <laughs> yeah you know yeah absolutely and i didn't want to write a book about anger you know, I, I didn't, I was like, what do I have to say about anger? You know, that book was a really tough unpacking of things, you know, that I had learned how to, how to do and it just became natural. And it, had, and it took me going back and unpacking and questioning, you know, so I had a lot of support <laughs> to, get, to get this book out. You know, this took, the book took me working with all kinds of energy, all kinds of beings, you know, which is part of my practice. Um, but I was just like, I don't have anything to say about anger, you know? But what I began to realize is that we can talk about anger, but we're also not talking about what's beneath the anger, you know, and how to hold everything. So that's where the love came in. That's where the suffering came in, you know? It's like, I can only be an agency with anger if I am falling back and being held by love. Okay, so let's, for listeners, let's, how do you define love? Yeah, yeah, love is, for me, love is about this acceptance, non-judgmental, open acceptance. It's not about liking anything, you know? I don't like a lot of people, you know? I can't stand a lot of people, I mean, quite honestly. And, you know, that, of course, that makes me a bad Buddhist, you know, which is probably going to be my next book. But like, I just, you know, it's not about liking, but for me, I have to accept people. 
right? And then once I accept people, I have to just be like, you know, and I want you to be happy. You know, yeah, you're a, a horrible, miserable person, you know, but like you're horrible and miserable because you're not happy. And because you're unhappy, you're creating a lot of misery for yourself and for the rest of us. What did Tupac say? Um, <laughs> I still want you to eat, just not at my table. <laughs> exactly. That's it. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I want you to be happy, but we don't have to like be BFF about this, you know? Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. My first introduction to queer Black Buddhist was Reverend Angel Kyoto, with whom you wrote Radical Dharma. And in an interview, she said, um, and I love, I share this quote with everyone as often as I can. Um, Angel Kyoto said in an interview in 2016, love is space. It is developing our own capacity for spaciousness within ourselves to allow others to be as they are. That is love. And that doesn't mean that we don't have hopes or wishes that things are changed or shifted, but that to come from a place of love is to be an acceptance of what is, even in the face of moving it towards something that is more whole, more just, more spacious for all of us. Absolutely. And so I get that. And so what's the difference between anger and rage? Are they just two sides of the same coin? I, you know, I look at rage. Rage is, for me, we can use them interchangeably, but rage for me, it's much more disembodied, you know? So rage is when I lose agency and contact, you know, with a sense of self, you know? And then I get lost in that anger, you know? As you see red, you know, and that's, yeah, extremely dangerous, right? You know, but for some people, like, that's their anger as well. So it's like, it, they're words that, like, I just kind of use interchangeably. Because for most people, it's really no difference. <laughs> you know, their anger is rage, their rage is anger. Um, all throughout the book, there's this really um, wonderful synthesis of complex and contradictory emotions. And to go back to Doris Day, you said that Doris Day resonated with you because of how love and anger lived in her activism. Talk to me more about that. How did you see, how did she demonstrate the marriage of love and anger? Yeah. Yeah, you know, because it was about complexity, you know? And I think that, you know, we look at these historical figures and on one hand, we want to really make them simple, mm. you know, because we want to somehow explain like their deep influence, you know, in the world. But like when you get close to these historical figures, when you study them, you see that they're like, they're quite complex, they're flawed. It was out of that complexity 
that their influence came because people saw that and they're like, oh, this is an actual person. You know, like you, we have to live in a complex way because I think oversimplification is an act of violence. Yes. You know, and when we try to bring that simplification into our lives, into our minds, you know, it's just going to be nothing but suffering because multiple things are always happening. You know, like for instance, like I am not a good person. You know, I like, I don't, I don't believe, I don't adhere to this idea that like I'm a good person, but what I do really practice is trying to practice goodness in every moment. What's the difference? The moment, the difference is it's a, a label, an identity location that I can get really rigid and stuck in. So if I'm a good person, therefore I can't do anything that's fucked up. Right. You know, so I, you know, I don't have a lot of space for critique, for feedback, because I am stuck within this identification of being a good person, you know, but when I am instead a person who is trying to practice goodness and virtue in every moment, then there's a lot of space for me to see the situations, the moments when I'm not actually practicing virtue and goodness. And then I can intentionally do certain things that do not line up with virtue and goodness skillfully in order to create more space instead of getting so rigid and tight around an identity i do something that's really petty you know and ugly because i need an i need an outlet it's like being a pressure cooker i need something to let off steam you know Mm. so like i'm not always doing good things you know but mostly i am right you know that's the complexity yeah you know, I had to do that heartbreaking work for myself. I had to come back and say, you know what? I just do things that are really fucked up. You know, yes, I'm still passive aggressive. Yes, I still make really inappropriate jokes. You know, yes, I still intentionally hurt people's feelings, you know, because I'm still like this sassy, hurt, traumatic queen deep inside, you know? And I let that, that part of myself express itself there's this kind of shutting away of the things about ourselves that we don't like. And I learned this the hard way, right? I'd like many of us do in that we project this idea of who we think we ought to be in the world, i.e. good, i.e. woke. Um, and that does not leave us room to be broken, to be wounded. And then we've got a bunch of wounded people hurting wounded people, but none really kind of grappling with their anger, their rage, right? With this, and that this anger and this rage is how would you not be angry right like that's the thing that's so of course we're angry yeah you know and it, it and it's like we don't want to be in relationship to that that anger and the rage because we don't believe that we can survive the intensity of those experiences you know and that's another thing that i work with people around it's like helping people to understand actually you you can consume the chaos instead of the chaos consuming you you know and you have you know going back to you know just what you just shared it's just like you have a lot of superstar activists public figures like woke people kind of like running around in these spaces and they have this huge shadow Mm. you know they have this huge shadow that they actually don't know how to incorporate into their public persona because they have come to notoriety because they have occupied a certain, you know, kind of image and branding, 
you know, that people have started relying on and actually forcing them to stay in, mm. you know? So if you try to like change that, then you risk losing whatever resources you've accumulated, you know, as whomever people think you are, you know? And so like my work has always been about from the very beginning, I have to be complex because the more I come into the public eye, I have to have the space to change, to fuck up, to make bad decisions, you know, and to like disrupt people's like this, the tendency from people to always like create you, you know, yes. in a way that makes them feel better, yes. you know, to create you in a way that's really simple so they can also simplify their understanding of self in a relationship to you. But when you get complex, you just mirror that complexity back to folks. And that's not what we want. You know, but if you want to get free, this is what you have to want in your practice, complexity, to see complexity in the world, to see complexity in our own experience. You actually define intersectionality in the book as, quote, a complex community of personal identities in constant interaction and expression. I highlighted that so hard I, <laughs> because so often when we rightfully when we're discussing intersectionality, we are, you know, trying to stay true to Dr. Crenshaw's you know, origin story, which is the overlapping oppressions impacting Black women, namely. And I think that so much of the narrative around intersectionality now is one of really erasure of, of the humanity, right? It does the opposite of what intersectionality was trying to call attention to. And so I love that this definition of intersection, intersectionality calls us to remember the human, right? The complex human. We're not just experiencing oppression. We also have lives and dreams and enjoys and we're trying to practice goodness and we're fucking up at the same time yeah and we have to allow each other the grace to be complex and in that intersectionality mm. you know we just yeah i mean we're tired i get it like we're tired we just want to rest we want something to be simple and easy you know but it doesn't forcing things to be simple isn't how you get to a place of rest it's actually cultivating the spaciousness to allow everything to be there. That's how we get to a place of rest, like just holding everything, not wanting anything to be different than what it actually really is, you know? And that, that means you have to deal with the disappointment and the heartbreak and the sadness and the hopelessness and to allow the space to open up around it and in doing that, you're consuming everything. You're consuming everything within spaciousness. You're consuming everything in love, you know? And that's how we have to move through the world, you know? That's how activist communities have to start moving through the world. We have to, we have to open up the space. It's not just about our anger and our hurt. It's also about joy as well. It's also about celebration. You know, it's also about saying, you know what? I won't ever be able to see the things I want to see in this world. You know, I won't ever see the end of racism or capitalism or patriarchy. You know, I can work and do everything that I can do in this life, but I won't able, be able to see it. And I have to accept that. It strikes me that your practice and your approach to this, what's this thought? I'm thinking of Michelle Obama's when they go low, we go high. And how a lot of what we hear as Black people, this suppression or repression of our anger, because we've learned that it's dangerous, right? People tell us we're dangerous. 
and this kind of respectable Negro, talented 10th, is all a kind of how we get by in a broken system without ever actually really changing the system. Whereas I think what your practice is pointing us to is, yes, it's an, a contemplative meditative practice that begins with us and in us, but so we can act action towards the future we all want to live in. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Like you have to acknowledge the brokenness in the system and within ourselves. Mm. You have to accept all of that. And, you know, once you accept something, then that's when your feet hit the ground. That's when you start walking and running. You know, but for many of us, because we can't accept, we're just treading air above ground. We think we're going somewhere. We're moving our legs, but we're not actually going anywhere. But to hit the ground, to touch the ground, you have to touch into the heartbreak. You know? the brokenheartedness, you know, you have to, you have to let your heart break. And that's when the ground opens up, you know. What's that quote? The um, cracks is where the light gets in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite poets. Oh, he's, yeah, amazing. One of the things, this is, kind of, this is not on topic, but one of the things I love about him is um, he, was very pure in his love for women and booze. <laughs> and I, <laughs> you know, and he has such reverence for those two things um, in his life. And I just always really admired that. <laughs> yeah, that was very cool. Um, so I've got two, well, one point, but two points, but they're both interconnected. That really stood out for me. Um, you have a chapter called Let's Talk About Sex. Yeah. Do why not? Consider, yeah, why? But do you consider sex or erotic fulfillment as a potential tool for liberation? Absolutely. Say more about it. Every, every part of our experience is uh, a tool for liberation. You know, sex and eroticism being primary, that's like the top of the list, because of the energy that is generated within sex and eroticism is nothing but energy. You know, so in tantric traditions, you know, tantric traditions emerge to actually take pleasure as a path to get free. So you're actually learning how to have agency over pleasure instead of pleasure having agency over you. You're actually using pleasure as a tool to point you to the nature of your mind, you know. Um, so we, we can talk about sex, you know, but to move into actually using sex as a path of liberation, it means that like you have to move, you have to use pleasure to hold space for the hurts and the trauma, you know, that comes up. You'd have to acknowledge and make space for and accept mm -hmm. how you're using sex and pleasure, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, and yeah, absolutely. You know, and then on <laughs> top of that- Because when I read that, this, I was yeah. like, triggered. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and, and like, like sex is fun. Like I'm not monogamous, you know, I'm out there, I'm a thought, you know, I do everything I had to, you know, I've had to take a break because we're in quarantine, you know, but like, I had to like, do that work for myself, right? I had to like embrace that part of myself, you know, um, not that like one day, you know, I, it's, it's not that like, I don't ever see myself being in a monogamous relationship. But I'm saying this is what's happening now, right? You know, but when you enter into this, into pleasure, you also are entering into 
trying to figure out how to also censor the needs of others that you're entering into pleasure with. That kind of breaking through the selfish, selfishness in order to decenter yourself to offer space for others to be in the center of that, that pleasure. And how did anger then prevent you from accessing that, that sexual fulfillment, that space making for yourself and for others? Yeah, you know, it's like it's the, it was the anger directed towards myself. You know, it was the anger of feeling not good enough, not feeling, feeling attractive, mm. the shame that comes up from that. You know, for me, it's, you know, shame is also an extension of anger, you know, um, but like the anger at myself, the anger at others, you know, how my anger actually begins to be channeled during sex. And no one likes to talk about that. You know, it's like how we can use sex actually to rehearse anger, you know, and violence against others. Say more about that. You know, I think, yeah, the rehearsing of violence, it's just like, you know, all of our, like, unexamined insecurities, all of our unexamined attitudes about the people that we choose to be with can get channeled into sex, you know, can get channeled into the ways in which we use other people as objects just to get the things that we want. And we kind of rob the humanity from the partners that we're with, you know, and that's the trauma, like particularly in the gay queer community, gay and queer men, like that's the, that's like at the top of those, it's like the number one kinds of trauma that we experience. It's like, I'm going to use you because actually I'm just like deeply like out of tune with my body. You know, I'm, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of anger, you know, I'm angry at you you know, because you're mirroring back these things about myself that I don't want to deal with. But at the same time, I'm using you, you know, to get this moment of pleasure that I'm just going to throw you away. You know, it's a consumption. It's uh, an abuse. Um, it is um, an addiction. And there's so much, I mean, this is such a big topic, a big topic to try to unpack in such a short space. But I think there's this conflation with sexual liberation and how and how we as gay men are really socialized to participate actively or passively, consciously or unconsciously in sex, right? It's almost like this is par for the course, par for the homosexual course, without us really ever taking the time to interrogate why that is, what it is that we want for ourselves out of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's the emotional woundedness that many of us grew up with. It's the ways in which we had to grow up being denied these really basic things, you know, and how we're just constantly trying to like fill and 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 feed these parts of ourselves, you know. But what we really are looking for is emotional labor. Like we're looking for emotional labor for ourselves. We're looking for a way to mourn all the shit that we had to live through growing up gay and queer that wasn't our consent. Like we didn't consent mm. the violence, you know? And somehow sex seems easy to use to feel that, you know? And, you know, in my practice, something is, you know, that was right in line with this is that, you know, when I was really trying to understand love in my training, you know, I connected to like what felt like a deep, dark, black, bottomless hole in my experience. You know, the despair, the hopelessness, the shame, it just felt, it was a convergence of all of those energies, those emotions. 
and I kept trying to fill it, right? I was like, okay, I'm going to fill this with energy of love and compassion and everything. And it kept swallowing everything, you know? And then I realized one day, I realized, oh, I actually, it's not, I, the practice isn't trying to fill this hole up. The practice is learning how to love this hole, you know? Like how to love this, this void in me you know, to accept it, to let it be there, to give it space. And then the space that opened up around it actually gave me a lot of permission, you know, to, to actually start thinking about, you know, the needs of others. You know, it, it, it gave me the space to also bring into my life joy and gratitude and kindness, you know. And so that, that, that hole is still there, but I'm taking care of it. You know, and I don't, it's not that like it's going to disappear or go away, but I just think it's like one of the many things within the complexity of my emotional identity, you know, that we have to hold space for, or we will continue reacting to that void in the ways in which we choose to express ourselves sexually. So in the sec section about hookup apps, you talk about coming out of a three-year retreat and, and, and discovering hookup apps. Um, you say, if you had a phone and the app, then you could enter into the marketplace to be seen and to engage in getting your needs met. Yet what was and is unsettling is the marketplace itself and how bodies are valued and devalued. This value and devaluing is a commodification of our bodies, where younger fit bodies are valued and bought while other bodies are ignored. Sometimes I feel as if I'm at a slave market where I'm both the slave and the slave master, you know, when I came out of my training, came out of retreat, I was like, what is this hookup app thing? You know, I was literally confused for like a couple of hours. It took some hard explaining um, for me, but like, and then getting into it and getting hurt and then finding myself reproducing these, like these, these behaviors, these patterns of like, okay, I'm going to choose you to fuck, you know? And you're not like, you don't have the agency of being human. You just like, I'm just going to fuck you. Right. And then that's it, you know, move on to the next thing. You know, I felt at one point how destructive that was for me because it really, it really began to repeat cycles of my own objectification, you know, um, you know, as like, you know, as a fat identified heavy, you know, heavy bodied person, you know, who's also black, you know, there was like, there's a complexity there. You know, there are boxes in which we're all put into, you know, and I had to start really challenging those boxes, right? You know, and I was so grateful for the practices that I've been doing, the ways in which my sexuality has been so restored in a way that like, I begin to see so much attraction in the world in a way that I didn't, I couldn't see before you know this retreat experience like i see so much attraction in all kinds of bodies now you know um and that's been so liberating for me you know so when i go on to apps which i'm you know you know i'm on the apps you know i'm like oh there are like so many attractive people but it's not about just getting off anymore it's about connecting you know if i hook up with you like we have to have a conversation first i need to know your name like, I want to know your favorite color. Like, I want to know what, like, you just, I just want these basic things. Like, I can't hook up, you know, like the many times I've done in the past where I don't even know your name. Yeah. You know, 
Um, I want to know your name and I want us to connect, you know, and when I do connect like that, those are the sexual relationships that continue, you know, um, those are the friendships that come out of what could have been potentially like a one time off hookup, you know, and that's what I'm interested in, you know, yes, sex can be the center of the relationship, but also humanity. It's the context that we hold this relationship in. Like, we don't have to, like, date and go out and, like, hang out all the time. But, like, we have to come to this place and restore each other's humanity together by seeing each other, by offering each other what we each need, and just by, like, having compassion. Like, I want to know, like, what, what's important for you because I want to offer that to you because that's how I get off as well. Like, I want to see you enjoying yourself as much as I'm enjoying myself, you know? And that's how, that's how I build these relationships. And it's been so restorative for me. And this comes from you making space for addressing anger. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm not angry with, I, I hold space for my anger. I'm not trying to take it out on you. You know, I'm not, I'm not frustrated with you. I, I am doing emotional labor for myself and that frees me to be in relationships that are so restorative, you know? I'm gonna share something with you. I was, I've been writing, I've been working on a poem for oh. like a month. Oh, beautiful. And it's about this, this false intimacy that's cultivated among us. Um, and it's, I mean, I probably, I'll probably edit this out, but it's something along the lines of, if, as if your prostate was a door and if I bang on it hard enough, I'll find a way into my father's heart. That's not how it works. I can't fuck into you what's been pent up in me. Your ass isn't a vessel for my disappointment, but let's keep trying. Like, that's what it feels like, right? Yeah, and that's, that's so powerful. That's such a powerful line because it's like, I've had to do the work around forgiving my father you know, for his lack of emotional availability in my life and his absence, you know, like every man that comes along isn't like, you know, my father who's trying to hurt me, you know, nor am I actually trying to get from other men what I should have gotten from my father. Mm. Yeah, shun you know? Freud, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's just like, it's just, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to like, like you, it's, it's in a way it's very simple, right? It's like, I'm just trying to have fun, but I want to have fun and not leave anything at the door. I don't want to leave my humanity. I don't want to create violence. You know, if we, if we're going to fuck, let's get together and fuck and just be present and enjoy the time together, you know, and, and just make sure that we're both in this together as humans consenting to this thing you know, and then when we get into like these higher tantric practices, of course, like that energy rises and you have meditation practices that you can do, you know, to really channel that energy. But, you know, that's all I want to do, you know, like you're, I don't blame you for my hurts. In Skillful Morning, you write, the best way to take care of myself is to acknowledge that my heart has broken and I don't trust a lot of people. I am suspicious of every person that I see walking down the sidewalk on the subway, especially if they're not of color. I know this makes me a bad Buddhist, but I think it makes me honest. <laughs> so much of your book is so refreshing and this conversation is so refreshing. I love that, 
I feel like I can access what it is that you're that you're offering here. Yeah, it's 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 about taking risks, you know. And at this point in my practice and my career, I'm just not interested in performing any anymore. Like I'm not interested in you feeling good. You know, I'm interested in you getting free. The work to get free is really quite challenging, you know, but there's a kind of space that begins to open up and that's what begins to hold the struggle, you know, and the honesty you have to, that's the, when that space opens up, you have to cultivate it with honesty. So you have to tell the truth. You have to be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't like people. I don't trust people. Like I, at this very moment of this recording, like I have a problem with white people, you know, you know, and I can own that and be with it. I don't hate white people. I, I struggle with whiteness, you know, and to work with that, I have to take space away from white people, <laughs> you know, who are part of the system of whiteness, you know, and I have to be honest about it you know, about that, you know, it's self-care, you know, and, you know, as, as Audre Lorde spoke about, you know, in the cancer journals, it's like my self-care is self-preservation and it's, it's warfare. It doesn't look pretty, you know, my self-care will hurt your feelings because it's not about you. It's about me, you know? Ashe, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Um, to close, I ask all of my guests, the same question, what do you hope for? Yeah, ah, so much. Um, I, I just really hope that we all will survive, you know? That's really it. Like, I just want all of us to get to the other side, you know, whatever that side looks like, you know? And, and I hope to be able to mourn those of us who don't make it. You know, because there's never an end. Mm. You know, there's never an end. Um, so. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, and for sharing yourself and your wisdom and your practice and for being so generous. I feel, I feel really moved and I'm really, really, really grateful. Yeah, this has been so beautiful. Thank you for this space. Lama Rod Owens is an author, activist, and authorized Lama in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. He is considered one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. You can find a link to pre-order his new book, Love and Rage, The Path to Liberation Through Anger, in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. guns are goat our miniature gun models will make you the center point of attention display them at your office desk bookshelf or man cave 
Collect and customize goat guns to your own liking. Each goat gun model has intricate parts that snap together to assemble. Start your next hobby addiction at goatguns.com.